There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode 28 of the Shine On Podcast, I'm Evan Shine. Happy holidays, everyone. This is the last episode of 2021 and the final episode of the very first season of the Shine On Podcast. And what a year it's been. What a ride, what a journey. What an absolutely incredible first season this has been with each and every one of you. All the listeners, thank you. To each and every Shine Up podcast guest for bringing their A-game and sharing their stories, their wisdom, and their expertise with all of us. Thank you. We have some big things in store for season two of the Shine Up podcast, which debuts on January 4th. New featured segments, more incredible guests and an even deeper look into the world of divorce from me, a New York City divorce attorney who lives it and breathes it from inside a courtroom and at the negotiation table alongside my clients and a team of incredible professionals and experts. We kick off the finale of the Shine On podcast with a special Divorce Docket Year in Review, Shine's Top 10 Divorce Stories of 2021. That's right, the absolute best podcast producer in the business producer dave has been hard at work day in day out this guy hasn't slept in weeks putting together an absolutely special and incredible docket year in review i'll sleep when i die evan i'm i'm just your your dutiful stagehand in the in the grand show that is the shine on podcast and dave it's an absolutely incredible docket and then after the 2021 year in review I am joined by Dr. Catherine Estee, a psychotherapist and the best-selling author of 80-something, a practical guide to letting go, aging well, and finding unexpected happiness. Catherine is the author of the recent guest essay in the New York Times. I'm 87, I'm triple-vaxxed, and I'm living my life again. This absolutely brilliant essay will inspire you, motivate you, and change the way you think about life aging, relationships, and happiness. She's the absolute perfect guest to take us into the new year, 2022, and a year, fingers crossed, will be a great one. My interview with Shine Up Podcast featured guest, Dr. Catherine Estee, is coming up on the other side of the Shine Up Podcast special edition, 2021 Top 10 Divorce Docket Year in Review. All right, Evan, time for the last docket of the year, and it's a special one. Are you ready, sir? Dave, let's do it. All right. And now, let's see what's on the docket. All right, Evan. With 2021 coming to a close, mercifully, some would say, we look back, the year in review, and you, my friend, I'm delighted to report to our listeners, have assembled a list for the year in review, the top 10 Divorce Stories of the Year. So let's go right into it. The Year in Review 2021. Number 10. Number 10, 2021, the year of the big name celebrity divorce. Bezos, 
Gates, Dr. Dre, Clarkson, Pitt, Jolie, De Niro. Just a few. And look, they each teach us something. Let's touch on a few big name divorces that absolutely rocked the divorce world in 2021. For Bezos and Gates, look, divorce affects us all. The money, the property, the assets. It doesn't shield and insulate you from divorce. These two divorces in particular highlight, as so many high-profile divorces do, the way in which these ultra-high-net-worth cases often get resolved at the negotiating table, often years and months in the making before the public ever catches wind of the divorce or before that joint statement is issued. Pitt Jolie, the divorce saga that for years seemed unresolvable, this divorce takeaway for me is the use of a private judge and how there can be other ways to resolve a litigation, really a high-profile litigation that protects the confidentiality and private details of the celebrities' lives, the lives of athletes, entertainers. Talk about confidentiality. How about Robert De Niro's divorce, which was the complete opposite of confidentiality, seemingly make it into the tabloids in page six of the New York Post every single time there was a court appearance And look, Dre and his wife, Nicole, what a nasty divorce this was. They are officially divorced, according to recent reports this month. How about Dr. Dre celebrating his divorce with balloons that he took to social media? And this divorce saw it all. The conflict, the allegations, the attorneys being disqualified, huge legal fee and support awards. You name it, this divorce had it. Kelly Clarkson, look, she's the perfect example and really a great inspiration to so many people out there that divorce is hard. And Kelly Clarkson has been open and candid about her divorce and how it's affected her and the struggles that she's had. And this to me highlights the team of support that we've talked about on so many episodes of the Shine On podcast. And divorce is a true team sport. Rewind to two of my favorite episodes, episode five and episode 10, featuring the divorce doctor, Elizabeth Cohen. Number nine, the sale of one pretty damn impressive art collection as part of a divorce. The collection of the Maclaus, who went through a knockdown, drag out, bitter divorce, one that was incredibly nasty, filled with allegations. This divorce filled the pages of New York newspapers for years. Look, art's an asset. It's often the largest asset for people with incredible wealth. And in the case of the Maclaus, they had an absolutely historic art collection that was part of the divorce. It was subject to valuations and appraisals. And producer Dave, are you ready? Are you sitting down? Do you want to know what the Maclow's art collection sold for? Drum roll, please. A whopping and record-breaking $676 million dollars sale at Sotheby's officially three years after Judge Laura Drager ordered Harry Macklow and Linda Macklow's to sell their art collection. The sale is final $676 million later. Number eight. The year of the pet. In 2021, the New York State governor passed a law that will allow judges to consider the best interest of the pet during a family law and divorce matter. I've mentioned it on episode number 27 during the docket, the great New York County judge, Matthew Cooper, who was instrumental in the passage of this law as he decided a famous case in 2013, where he listened to testimony on the best interest 
of the party's dog. Number seven. The NCAA takes a hard hit. 2021 was the year that college athletes now have the ability to earn money from their name, image, and likeness. And if you're wondering how does this topic end up in the top 10 2021 divorce year in review, first, as all my listeners know, I'm a huge sports fan. I also lead my firm's family law sports division. We have had guests such as former football player Wally Gunlier, who now leads the UBS Sports and Entertainment segment, and attorney Darren Heitner on the show. I will tell you this monumental change in how college athletes can get paid will impact athletes and their spouses in divorce when it comes to assets, income streams, and future earnings. But it also highlights the need for why athletes must consider having a prenuptial agreement in place as their earnings can be substantial while they're still in college and without having to first sign that professional contract. Number six. The real estate boom. There was a huge boom in the real estate market in 2020, and that continued into 2021. And we saw this play out in divorce negotiations all over the country. The opportunity to profit from the sale of the marital home may never be as good as it was in 2021. This played a role in the divorce negotiations all around the country. Who keeps the house? Should we sell the house? Those were the questions that I heard all year in 2021. As we head into 2022, all of us are watching the real estate market. Number five. Relocation. 2021 was the year that due to COVID and the pandemic saw people and families pick up and leave their cities for suburban life or life in a different state altogether. I had clients leave New York to stay in their vacation home in Cape Cod, Connecticut, or leave New York for the warmer weather in Arizona or Florida. They left as one big happy family and they could do that. People were working virtually. A temporary move then became a bit longer. Life was good out of the city, in the warmer weather, with the ocean breeze and a bigger space. And then what happened? One person wanted to come back to the city. They left. One person had to go back to the office. The other person wanted to stay. Then the fallout. Battles over who had jurisdiction. Couples breaking up. One person was in New York. The other person was in Florida. I have had at least five cases in 2021 Battles and arguments over which state has jurisdiction, where's the divorce going to be take place. We see that in relocation in 2021. It's going to be an interesting story to follow in 2022. Number four. There's a new law in New York in 2021 that bolsters privacy for domestic violence victims. I cannot underscore the importance of this law and protecting victims of domestic violence. We have seen domestic violence cases rise and skyrocket during the pandemic as more people were forced inside into quarantine. We had leading expert Dr. Cheat Ragavan on episode number seven to talk about the non-physical forms of domestic violence, coercive control, and psychological manipulation. Kudos to everyone in New York State who was instrumental in passing this incredibly important law. Number three, technology. If you don't know what Zoom is or Skype or Microsoft Teams, crawl out of the rock that you're living under because it's about to be 2022. 
Technology has changed the way we live. It's changed the way we work. It's changed the way we interact in all of our relationships. And if you still haven't embraced it, you have about a week until January 1st, 2022. Get on board because breaking news, technology is here to stay. The inside of a courtroom has been replaced, at least for now, until the courts are fully open with the waiting lobby on Microsoft Teams. And sure, I miss litigating in person, the rush, the energy, the adrenaline. Cross-examining a witness in a courtroom or delivering an opening statement, no Microsoft Teams will ever be able to replace that. And yes, we will be back in a courtroom in person. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, I can't wait for that to happen. The ability to settle cases in the hallway, outside the courtroom, the judge's opinions and thoughts carrying so much more weight when delivered to the clients in person. Sure, we'll get back to that place. But for now, we're litigating in a virtual world, and it has gotten the court system and people through the pandemic while still managing to move cases forward in an efficient way. For quick conferences or status updates going forward, I do expect those to continue in some way, even when we're back in person. I expect those to continue virtually as well. Technology has changed mediation and the way sessions are conducted. I'm not sure they will ever go back in person. Technology, everybody, it's a thing of the present and the future. Number two. The mediation boom. Thanks to the court system shutdown early in the pandemic, the rise of alternative dispute options has skyrocketed. Shine on podcast guests and expert mediator Susan Guthrie has shared incredible insight on episode 15 about the future of mediation and why mediation has become the go-to process choice for so many people. The Year in Review 2021. Number one. The number one on the Shine On Podcast Year in Review 2021 is COVID and custody determinations. Recently, Monroe County Supreme Court Judge Richard Dollinger ruled that a mother can have her 11-year-old daughter vaccinated over the objection of the father. This case made headlines, and rightfully so. I have seen so many clients have COVID-related questions, concerns about schedules, travel, pickup and drop-off exchanges, and none more than in recent months. But my number one on the Shine On podcast docket is the case of CB versus DB, a case that I was involved in as the attorney for the mother, which was decided by the great New York County judge, Matthew Cooper, on October 7th, 2021. This case has been talked about, written about, and cited by so many people since it was decided. Judge Cooper determined in a published decision that the father's in-person parenting time with the party's young child would be suspended until the father was vaccinated or submitted to regular rapid and PCR tests prior to any in-person visit taking place. Apparently, this was the first published decision in the country on this exact issue. And as an attorney, this is what you live for these moments, these cases, the difference that you can make. And look, we're living in extraordinary times. This decision highlights the times we're living in, the state of the world, and also the importance of doing everything and anything available to protect the health, the safety, and well-being of children during this time. This was the first ever Shine On podcast, Top 10 Divorce Stories of the Year. Producer Dave, let me ask you, Was there one 
or more than one that stood out for you, whether it's my list or a divorce story out there that we've talked about in 21 that really, you know, hit home and registered for you? Well, first of all, I just want to celebrate the fact that number one was the one I was waiting for listening down the whole list. And I was, I was on the edge of my seat, hoping that you didn't forget the very case that you prevailed in, which was such a major case and in the appropriate spot on the list, because not only does that case represent a significant legal twist that, that eventually I suppose could be considered precedent. If nothing else, it's trend setting and a judge for a judge to do that. But Talk about topical. I mean, you, it involves COVID. It involves one part, the the anti-vax crew. And I know you've probably de- dealt with this before, but it's an interesting moment in time because the, the the vaccination debate has sadly become politicized. And I know that typically in a, in a divorce, you know, custody hearing, it's not as if you could argue, well, I don't want my child living in the home of a Republican. I think that would be, I think a judge would dismiss that out of hand. <laughs> However, when it, when it's tied up, and I, and I don't even know about the, whether there was any political element to this or not, but this just shows you that when, the, when it comes to safety, when it comes to public safety, we've been talking about all year, that the interests of the best child are what they are. Get the shot. <laughs> so it was a, it was the correct decision. I'm glad you put it there. But my reaction, and, and uh, I'll stop blathering on in a, in a moment, Evan, but my reaction is it's a tremendous list, and it just it goes to show you how 2021, sadly, continued to trend started in 2020, which is our lives are never going to be the same thanks to this pandemic. So so many of the items on your list have to have to do with it. The Zoom hearings, the the tech, the like, so technology mediation maybe is even tied up in that a little bit, but but there are rays of rays of hope, like the thing I just mentioned. Zoom sometimes the Zoom hearings are better, and we've discovered that they're more efficient. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's case specific, but right. I think look, the point is technology is here. It has impacted our lives in so many ways and some really phenomenal ways. And we've talked about before with different guests about that silver lining. And I think when we look back at the pandemic, in terms of the court system and what's developed, we're going to look back and talk about technology in 2020, 2021, and beyond. As this time period in the court system history, technology is really going to have such an important influence and impact as we go forward in years to come. When we think about aging, we tend to think about ways we can prevent the inevitable rather than embrace it. Our featured guest today on the Shine Up podcast, Dr. Catherine Essie is a social psychologist, psychotherapist, and best-selling author. Dr. Essie's latest book, 80-somethings, a practical guide to letting go, aging well, and finding unexpected happiness, and her recent guest essay, I'm 87, triple vaxxed and Living My Life Again, published in the New York Times, provides a framework for those transitioning to this stage of their lives and how they can continue on their life journey with the sense of optimism and hope for the future. Catherine, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. How are you? Well, I'm fine, and thank you for having me here. I'm uh, really glad to be here. I'm excited about our conversation. Fantastic, Catherine. We're excited to have you. 
you have had one absolutely remarkable career, decades and decades of experience in the psychotherapy field. You're a best-selling author of multiple books. And most recently, you penned the New York Times guest essay. Before we dive into your career, I would love to hear a little bit more about your background. What made you interested in the field of psychotherapy? Okay, well, I was born in New York, but was always after that in small towns and wasn't particularly interested in college. I didn't major in psychology. I majored in history. So it wasn't until uh, I was about uh, to be 30 that I became interested. And it was really through, I think, some of the movements of group movements of the time. And I had some experiences that I taught, I was teaching, and I got more interested in what was happening among the students than the, actually the subject matter. So I thought, oh, I need to be uh, go to school. So I went to social work school and became a clinical psychologist and therapist and have been practicing off and on for 50 years. and But then I went back to school and became a social psychologist, which is really looking at organizations and groups and how they function. So by the time I'd finished all my schooling, my two advanced degrees, I covered individuals and kind of inner problems. And I then had was also doing kind of what makes organizations and society work better. So I cover both fronts. Catherine, I love hearing about your background. We're going to touch on your different experiences and your truly incredible career. I want to talk about happiness and happiness specifically as we get older in life. Is that true that we get happier with age? It is. It's one of the gifts of aging that people absolutely don't know about. If you ask the person uh, next to you whether we're happier as old people, they would say definitely not. That was, But the fact is, the science, the new science, um, has shown that, that we have sort of a U shape and people are happy very young. And then when they're in their 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, the happiness factor goes way down. And then as you age, a go aging, the 70s are happier than the 60s. And I found that, and the scientists have found too, that the 80s are happier in general than the 70s and the 70s and the 60s. So it's very uh, counterintuitive. And in my book, I interviewed many, many people in their 80s to, and I found the same thing, that most of the people were what I call unexpectedly happy because nobody had looked forward to growing older or that nobody expected that they'd be having any fun when they were 80. And But the, the older people are not, old age is not like what it was for our grandparents and even your grandparents. And Catherine, tell us about that because you have clearly found a way to strive towards happiness and to find happiness at an age in your 80s when many people are stuck. And so what would you recommend to people who are experiencing patterns of redundancy and are really finding it difficult to find that level of happiness that you talk about in your book, In Your 80s? Well, I think part of it is expectations that people have been brought up to dread old age. And we, as kids, we dread old age and we've all been fed what I would call mistaken stereotypes. I mean, we've been told you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And we say, oh, I can't do this new technology. People sort of give up. But the real science is not only do our 
old people happier, that old people, the mental health of elder people is also better than younger. I mean, and that is so not known by people. Actually, people when they're older are less anxious, less angry, less uh, depressed. So if people are depressed, I mean, and there are plenty of people that are, most of them say, well, of course I'm a depressed, I'm old. And that is just the wrong conclusion. The conclusion is you need to do something about your depression. You may need to get some, you may need some medication. You may need to change the way you're living. You may be, uh, were like many of us were isolated during the pandemic and you were having a miserable life because you couldn't go out of your home and you didn't have, you were lonely and you were so, but that's depression. That isn't the way, Nate, that's not the state of being older. And I think once some of the real science gets out. I mean, my sense is, of course, uh, I think people sometimes don't look forward to growing old because uh, there is death at the very end and nobody really, or few people look forward to to dying. But the, the years when people are feeling active and healthy, where they're feeling mentally sharp and feeling really capable of, are expanding. Uh, Every year, more people are able to be in all those categories. And so there's a lot to look forward to that people haven't known about before. It's absolutely brilliant. And you mentioned technology. Has technology been something that people in their 80s, especially during the pandemic, whether it's FaceTiming or connecting over Zoom like we're doing right now, has technology helped people in their 80s to feel even more connected in relationships with their children, their grandchildren, because of the way we can virtually connect right now? I think so. I think it's uh, changed forever uh, the way families connect. I mean, there's so many families now that they can actually get together in real life that have uh, maybe a meeting every week, a meeting every two weeks. Sometimes they're having uh, bigger family reunions for the Thanksgiving and the uh, holidays. And the idea that you you have, we, of course, in America, we live all over the, the both coasts and everywhere in between. But now, with uh, this new technology of Zoom, I think it's Zoom that most people use. People have the meetings and they do get together. But I do think there's still, and I feel this very strongly as a psychologist, it's not quite the same as the real meetings. I know when I got together after the pandemic with one of my women's groups, and we were outside and it was a, a beautiful day and we hadn't seen each other for like 18 months, except on the screen. To, so to be there and to be really touching and and we it was we were giddy like uh, high school kids and we were <laughs> laughing and we just it was like a, a really overpoweringly wonderful experience and I think there's something about being really in touch that we as human beings need we are social animals and we do do need to be together and I don't think the screen will ever quite do it it's a good it's a wonderful thing, and it has, and it's great that so many older people have learned how to manage Zoom. But it, the real in-person, in-touch, touching each other is just uh, so much better for our health. I think we all suffered during that pandemic and when we were so lonely, but I think it's great that things are opening up. Absolutely, and especially with the holidays right around the corner, being able to connect with friends and family. And you're right, Catherine, to have that in-person 
connection to sit down at the dinner table to talk to your child, grandson, granddaughter in person. That's the feeling of, look, Zoom technology, it's amazing. It's incredible. You talk about the benefits. You see it. I see it. So many people all over the world see it. But you're right. That in-person connection is something truly special. Catherine, you wrote this terrific guest essay recently published in the New York Times on aging and living life in your 80s. How did you get interested in the topic of aging? Well, I really, as I said, I came late to psychology and I came even later to aging. It was when I was 80 myself and I actually had an aha moment. I went, uh, I was in the Adirondacks at my summer home and with a bunch of my kids and grandkids and we were out for our usual walk, uh, hike, just a small mountain that usually takes about an hour and a half to climb, and then it's an hour to come home. It's got a little steep thing, but I had done it probably at least 60 times in my life. I'd done it in recent years. But this year I started out, there were maybe 10 or 12 of us that were going up the mountain, and uh, it had rained the day before, and so about just a little ways in, I slipped and fell down and cut my knee, and I, then I fell again, and I was so shook by that that when I and I was feeling tired, and when I got to the place where you suddenly got have to really go uphill, it's sort of it's a, it's a scramble. I just said I I can't do this, and I was the the grand that could do keep was I, I kind of thought of myself as a super grand because I could keep up, I could do all this. <laughs> suddenly I couldn't, so I sat down on a stump, and I. I, I kind of had to face the whole shebang of aging. I kind of said to myself, well, I am getting old. There are going to be things I can't do. I can't get up this mountain. One of my sons stayed behind with me, and I kind of cried a little bit. And the others, the grandkids scamper, scampered up the hill, uh, up the mountain. And I sat there and while they all had lunch. And during that hour, I sort of came to understanding that, of course, nobody gets through life. We all age. There's all, we all have things we finally can't do, and that, that it was a fact. But then at that point, I said, well, I, I was unhappy about it. And then I, as the, kind of a few weeks went by, I thought, well, there must be people that know how to manage these years and it must be flourishing, and I'm going to find out how to, what the what the secrets of aging well are. So I started interviewing people in my own retirement community. And then I started getting other people. I went to other places in my local area. Then I was calling and visiting. And I went to California and Ohio over that next year. And then I went to New Orleans. And and I so I started interviewing people in their 80s, you know, long interviews. And what I found, and I did get the answers, and I did also get my find out that I was interested in aging. It changed me. My actually doing those calls and having this project that I had a purpose suddenly that was beyond anything I'd ever had, and I had this new interest and something that it became a passion. To and when I found out about how old age and aging has changed, I wanted to get the word out. So that's where I am now. I sort of see myself having this mission to get the what the science tells us, what I've found from interviewing real people. And so that's in my book. And I thought about there's so much 
that's really upbeat about that can happen if in the from 65 and tell 100 that people need to know. So that's what I'm doing now. And uh, that's how I got interested, really, from that time I sat on that stump. And, and Kathy, that's such a powerful story and really incredible moment because you had that moment that you referenced sitting on the stump. You're incredibly active and you had that moment where life could have gone in a few different directions. And this was, in many ways, the you know spark plug for you to become interested in this particular topic, to really be a resource and set out on the journey of speaking to people, learning about the topic, encouraging people to perhaps think about aging in a different way. And so what are a few facts that the listeners and everyone out there should know about aging and the older population? Yeah, well, first they should know how that, that longevity is, we all are expected to live to be 78, but that's really low because it used to be 79 just a year ago before the pandemic. And it's for women, it's higher than that. And in other countries, I think when we get our healthcare system set up a little better, for instance, in Japan, the life expectancy is 84. And many people think that of the five-year-olds alive today, perhaps the majority of them may live to 100. That that has been tossed out as a real possibility. So we're we're looking at for everybody that's younger, uh, even us that are older, many many years here. And the question is, how? What is the purpose of these years? How do we enjoy these years? And I, for instance, said I'm 87 right now. I have six years of life expectancy on average. People that get to 87 will live six more years. But people don't feel it that way. They feel, I've in my interviews, I found that people that were 80, for instance, were very reluctant to plan anything more than 18 months because they get kind of feeling that there's a, a, a shorter horizon. But I think as we get used to the idea that we may have many, many years and we should plan for them, things will change. Catherine, what is something that the younger generations today should know about people in the in their 80s and really about aging well one of the funny things that i i discovered it was kind of non uh, intuitive was that i think the people in their 70s and 80s were some of them less anxious during this pandemic and i said it it's a thing i think it's because we are closer to death we've we're not so frightened by it and i'm wasn't sure anyway that i that i'm going to i somehow wasn't as afraid of covid are there many other ways i might go so i think they've got to see that we're not we are different from they are they are but the things that they don't usually understand often i think our adult children the People that are in there, my children are in their 60s and 50s. Some people are interested, have children in their 40s. That they sometimes don't realize what our needs are. And I think our needs are to have control, to not be, sometimes adult children, not all, but a few of them get very bossy and, and, and sort of work. Telling their parents, you got to do this, you can't do that, you got to get. I had one of uh, my sons was saying, you can't drive down to Thanksgiving, you can end. And I actually gave in on that one and got, got some a way to get down there, got someone else to drive me. But so I think they need to know that that they need, that, well, we have to be 
in negotiations together. Nobody can, and, and sometimes older people can get irrational. And there are, is a time when you have to say, Mom, you, I don't think you should drive anymore, or I don't think it makes sense to do this or that. But I think there is also the sense that there is so much to look forward to and that so many of these stereotypes aren't true. I mean, a lot of people think that they're, People aren't interested in sex after they're 60 or something. They, And I think don't realize that, that people can be sexual and their whole life and affectionate and have relationships that people don't realize that there's a lot of freedom that comes when you're not working so hard. I mean, I think people in there that are the children of people in their uh, 70s and 80s are so busy bringing up their own kids and with their jobs, they don't know that the, the, the we 80-somethings are having so much fun and that we can wake up and say, well, now what would I really like to do today? There's a freedom. And there's a freedom when you don't care so much what people think about you. There's a freedom to dance in a certain saying, and I'm, it's sort of a metaphor, but it's real. I'm just started a dance class that, and this teacher, in some of them, she's a ballet teacher, but here we have all these old people in the class and she creates a mood where we all see ourselves somehow like we're doing ballet we and we don't feel awkward and that but I'm moving and having this absolute lovely experience and I think that it I just never expected I would have so much fun. Catherine you mentioned so many wonderful things and one of the words the f word freedom absolutely brilliant and I love hearing that and, and, and I would imagine that's something that whether it's your children or, 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 or even a younger generation would, would find to be so hard to comprehend that you're in your 80s. You mentioned ballet and a dance class and having the freedom to choose and to get up in the morning. And in the New York Times article, you describe yourself as a risk taker and an optimist. So I have to ask you, what, what is it that keeps you feeling young, feeling motivated to wake up in the morning, to have that freedom, to have that control, and whether it's dance class or to be in a relationship. And I know you mentioned in the article that early in the pandemic, you moved in with your your significant other at that time. What is it that gets you up in the morning with that feeling of excitement that this is going to be an absolutely great day? Well, I think I do have to say I have been incredibly lucky. I mean, I have had had some bouts. I did end up in, in the hospital in the, uh, and I was recently in the hospital a second time. So I have had my share. But I think it's I've had essentially very amazingly good health for my age. And I live in a place that there's a lot of people. So when bad things happen to people here, there's a circle of people around them. And it's a, it's a social place. It's a community. And I'm part of a community of friends. And I'm so and I have a, a, a boyfriend, a live in boyfriend. And so that is a great way to live. I think I had a very happy marriage, but my husband died six years ago. And then my boyfriend is wonderful, too. And so I think it, it's luck. And I, I think it was interesting from my that article. Some people kept saying, well, she should be, doesn't realize how privileged she was. Well, I do realize how privileged I, I have been. And I do realize, and I think more and more, I'm realizing that I'm talking, and even most of the people I interviewed in the book, I did interview a lot of people that were in the lower economic end of the scale that were also flourishing, but it's much, much harder. And I think I think what I've learned that isn't good news 
is that there's a tremendous inequality in our country and that the top half of the economic uh, uh, ladder are doing well and that but I think it's ha- much much harder and if you and people that the sort of bluntly people that are poorer die sooner so they don't get these extra years and it, there's a, a huge discrepancy in the number of year, life expectancy of people according to their zip code oh, that's, it's really interesting Catherine I want to go back to something you mentioned that you have children who are in their 50s what advice would you give or have you given to your children who have watched you get older, you're in your 80s, obviously for adult children, seeing their parents get older can be a very hard thing to process. Is there advice that you would give to adult children about the way to process their parents' aging? Well, I think one thing, I think it's great if uh, children have each other. I noticed that when there are a lot of people that are 80 have families of four and five and even six. And in, and I think that that's people are having family meetings now. So I think that's a really great way to, uh, to because there eventually are going to be crises that happen no matter how healthy and how good you are. And I always come to, I had one person that I interviewed and just, they seemed to have worked it out so well. There were three kids and they had a mother who was like in her 90s but they had a family. They the kids met for on a phone call uh, every Thursday for like half an hour just to check in. They kind of divided up the looking, and this is more for when you get to the la- later stages of aging. But they had one that was helping with the finances. One was helping with the emotional connection, and and one was doing the the healthcare stuff with the doctors and so on. And then they also had a meeting with their mother every Thursday after they'd had that initial call just to see what how she's doing, check in. And that seemed, um, especially if you don't live nearby, it was a really uh, good system. So I think it's communicating. That's what I'm saying. That was one way one family did it, but it's keeping the communication open and keeping so that people know. I think a lot of time at the when people are actually sicker and they don't know because they aren't really seeing what's happened. So I think it's being in touch and staying. But I think on the other hand, it's to realize that if they are doing well, that, that the possibilities are endless and to kind of, and I think most kids really are pleased to bring the, the uh, older generation in and realize it's a, the multi-generational family is a, is a special deal, a special treat. But I, I have also, I have more what I would call guidelines for older people to age well. I have, I think I've got some for my, my audience in my book and in my blogs is both these adult children who are in these multi-generational families and dealing with their parents who are both in all stages of aging. And I think, I guess the other thing I tell young people, like the young people like 50s, that Everybody ages differently. And so some people, people all who will say to me, well, you don't seem 87. Well, this is 87, but there's all other kinds of 87. And you sort of, you have to kind of, you can't generalize about too much about you specifically because people are very unique in the way they age. And so that's really important to remember. That's a great point. And you mentioned the blogs and the resources and your book. You have so many wonderful resources out there for people in their 80s to really learn about aging well and finding happiness in the secrets. And 
your own life experiences, I mean, they, they really come through. Why is it that there appears to be, or you saw in your research and studies, that, that there was a lack of resources and information out there for people in their 80s, as opposed to the content for baby boomers or even younger generations? What was missing that you saw the need to create these wonderful resources? Well, I think the first thing I found out when I was, because since I was 80 and I began then, was that there was nothing that people wrote about old age from the age, like 65 to 100. And most of it was very prescriptive saying, do this, do that. And there was really no, there were no books on it being in your 80 that were, you know, looking at what it was actually like to be today to be 80. So it, I did see a hole and there's still a, a, a lack of, of, of a differentiation. I mean, there's a lot of transitions that happen somewhere along this long path, but you can't just generalize. And I was shocked that some of the people were like 50 were writing about what old age is like. And it just, <laughs> Catherine, what, what did you learn from writing your book, conducting so many interviews, speaking to so many people connecting with all the people that you spoke to. What did you learn about writing the book that you didn't know before? Well, I think I, I didn't know how deep and profound the kind of experience of aging that you want, everybody needs to cope with. Uh, and that most people didn't, and I didn't understand what it's, what really happens as you age and you have to come to grips with, uh, losing things and yet maintaining your ability to relate to people and make connections and make new friends. So that, that there was an art and, and some logic and some ways to go that people that pe weren't well known. And I think, I think lots of people did discover even in the pandemic, how important relationships were and that you really, there's nothing more important than relationships, but there's also, I think a, a total, uh, lack of understanding in our society of how to grieve and older people have to grieve when I, I when I came out of the hospital this summer and I had to go on a walker I just couldn't believe it I was upset I'd angry didn't I didn't want to be that one of those people on a walker and I it took me a while to accept it and finally I was okay and, and then finally I got rid of it so I'm now totally independent but Oh, good. That's and, and that's great to hear. And you mentioned the pandemic and relationships. And Catherine, in your essay, in the New York Times essay, you talk about the fear of not living life to its fullest over the years ahead outweigh the fear of the pandemic and COVID for yourself. Tell us about that and what you found from the people in your community, in your age range, about how the pandemic has impacted not only those around you, but also how you think about life and what's ahead. Yeah, well, I think it has been a, a devastating experience for many of, to realize it, to get really it, it, be in our be homebound for eighteen months, and in my retirement community, we were in our apartments for twelve weeks, which is so. I think we all have had to learn to live with tremendous uncertainty 
and change that we just never imagined that you could close down schools and cho- close down the world. I mean, it's so we've all had to adapt and adapt and adapt. I think it's been easier, actually, as I said, for these those of us in our 70s and 80s, because we weren't, many weren't working. So, and so I think it's been hardest on the people that, the kids that missed out on school and were at home in those critical years. And also for some of my clients were working moms and were had three kids that they were kind of, they had to keep uh, going to their Zoom classes and the kind of, they would flag and not be interested. And the moms had their jobs and these kids that were not so happy. And um, it was just, I think women have been set back, some people say 50 years by the pandemic. So, so that is a, a hard thing. And I think it's uh, hard. People need encouragement to, and some people once they've given up all these things and stayed home are finding it hard to get out and about. And of course, now we're learning that the pandemic's going to be with us in some form, maybe. So it does take courage, I think, to get out. And But I think the rewards are so, I mean, I found, as I wrote, that the rewards are just immeasurable. And, and I keep saying to myself, and I believe this in my bones, that much more is possible than we know. And so that the real question is, what is possible for me? And I think that each person needs to ask that, and the answers will be different. But much more is possible in our older years than we ever, ever dreamed. And so it's just, it is, but it is a question, I think, a little bit of faith. And I, and I think, but there's, again, my science behind it. There's, there's um, <clears throat> some studies that show if you have a positive attitude about aging, you're going to live 7.5 years longer than people wow. that have a negative. And then, so it's really all in your attitude. And uh, it's, you do have control to a degree about your attitude, uh, to a large degree. Catherine, there's two things I want to ask you about what you just said, because I love, I love it. When you talk about aging, is there a time period that or an age when people generally start to think about aging? Is it in their 60s? Is it in their early 70s? What's that time period where you would recommend that people really start to give the next chapter of their life some serious thought and to reflect and to to, to have that positive attitude and positive mindset? Well, I think you need it all along. And I think, as I was saying, everybody ages differently. So I think the age of retirement, I think maybe, I mean, I've just been reading and thinking about a study of remapping life that is coming out of Stanford called A New Map of Life. And what they say is we should see life now as early life, childhood, uh, adult life, and then older life. And that we should, what's wrong with our society right now is people as in the middle are working way too hard and then we've got to stretch out work. So that's an interesting concept. But I think that, so now uh, that we, if we take, see that, we have to see that at every decade, we probably need to do a reassessment of, and it's, but it happens. I think people should be planning in their fifties, thinking of the next step. And because they, they've got to figure out, I think people retire too early, but that's because the workplace isn't set up and we need uh, jobs that are part-time and flexible. And then people, it would match our, the way we age uh, to, because I had, was lucky enough to have part-time jobs uh, and flexible jobs. And then you can work till you're 87. But if you have a job where you're on the 
a, a line or something, you're never going to do it. So I think hopefully people will get the idea and get some idea of different ways to plan and think about. So when you're 50, you start the th- conversation. When you're 60, you take another look. And then all along, and I think even on a yearly basis of planning and I think setting it makes sense to set some goals and even if it's the goal is to to do less that's where I am I just I was gonna ask you tell us about your personal goals for 2022 as we enter the holiday season as we turn the page on 2021 look forward fingers crossed to an even better 2022 I agree with you I think the pandemic's going to be with us much longer into the new year but what specific goals do you have for yourself as we head into the new year? So you're going to laugh at this because I actually just retired from the psychotherapy practice. Well, congratulations. So I, and that was because I had been ill in the in the summer, but I really did need slow down. I mean, I am not a person, I am a doer. I'm someone that is always packing too much into the day. I'm a <laughs> stoic. I ignore all the health problems. So Slowing down was a goal, and what I found, even I in the like three three weeks that I've been uh, retired, I realized well I'm not at all retired because I'm working hard on these blogs. I'm giving talks like this one. I'm so I have a whole different career, a plan B, and this is really a, a plan C, a plan C career uh, around being a writer. And so my goals for the year are to continue my blogs, which I. Uh, find I uh, I just write them once a month, but also to continue doing these uh, talk kinds of talks. I've got things lined up, some talks lined up for the new year, and uh, to ex- people are kidding me and saying, "Were well, you going to write about the '90s?" And, and they are all telling me examples of people. And they say, "Should you write? You know, you should interview Joe over here. He's 94, and and I do. And there are stories all the time of people in there." 90s doing marathons and then there was some guy jumping out doing skydiving he jumped wanted to on his 80th birthday he wanted to jump out of the sky 80 times in one day i mean there's crazy stuff people can do a lot <laughs> does, that, does that mean we're gonna see you do that <laughs> that's not my goals i'm not gonna be jumping out of do sky doing skydiving i'm not getting any tattoos either so fair enough fair enough but Catherine, you mentioned that you're you're a doer has being active, has being a doer, and whether it's your psychotherapy practice or now this different stage for you, the talks, your great blogs, your writings, your books, is that, do you see that as a way to keep going, keep moving forward, to bring you that happiness in a different way, obviously, than your your private practice, but by being active in your mind and physically as well, does that help you not only set goals for yourself, but derive some incredible pleasure and great happiness? Yeah, I think I do think, and one of my guidelines for it is, I do think that I'm learning to be, not only to be a doer, but to have some time, more time being. And I mean, I now meditate every day. I'm trying to meditate every day. And I'm seeing that there's growth on that side of it. So I think it's getting a balance between the doing and the being. It's also, I think that the key for me, I think there's two keys. One is the idea of having some routines that take care of health. I mean, I do think you have to do some things like that. That's kind of been a goal. And um, then I think that purpose is underrated or is so much more important than I had ever realized. So I do think that it's it's really... 
critical and to find a purpose, something that you enjoy. And there's all kinds of purposes that can be, they may not be, but certainly probably for most people won't be paid work in their late 70s and 80s. And that that's the key. And that's what I'm right now writing about and helping people figure out how to, what, how to find a purpose. So, because I think I always go back to Viktor Frankl, who wrote about Auschwitz, and he found that it wasn't the most healthy people that survived. It was the people that had something to live for and that they wanted to get through. So I do believe it. it's very it's good for your whole well-being and your longevity to to and and a, a purpose takes some doing to do you know it's it, it and it usually people share it it can't be just if someone's like a a singer they want to sing in a in a group that performs or whatever Catherine what's the one piece of advice that you would give to someone in their 80s you talk about your dance class you talk about your writing what's the advice that you would give to someone in their 80s, to get up, get out there, try something new, try to find that purpose and seek something that gives them such great happiness? Well, I think it is that life holds much promise uh, up to, to all the very last days. And so I would hope that people would realize that they can have uh, love and pleasure and just to their very last days, and that this is possible. And almost if they say that, so that if they're not feeling happy and they don't aren't feeling that day after day, that that's not their fate, but that they need to do get some help, go to a, a social worker and get or a psychologist or psychotherapist, or go to their doctor and get some some kind of medication. But it, that I think that. All of us deserve the time that we're older to be a happy time, mostly a happy time, and we and we will have losses, but it should balance out to be a, a good time of life. Catherine, you mentioned the good time of life. You have, as I mentioned, really wonderful resources. Your book, 80-somethings, tell all the listeners and the audience how they can stay in touch with you and find your book. Yeah, well, the book is, I think it's on Amazon. I think they ran out for a while, but I think maybe it's, they have some now again, but it, uh, and it's going to be a paperback coming out in a few months, but I think that it, they can go to Amazon or other places they uh, to get it, and um, they can stay in touch with me. I have the, a newsletter, which is SD, all one word, about capital E and capital K, dot com. And just to, for me, the tricky thing is all my, my name. And people keep calling me Etsy instead of Esty, and they spell Catherine wrong. But other than that, if they get you get the right spelling, which is with two A's, and, and that it's E-S-T-Y, they'll get to me. And I have all sorts of resources for collect kind of articles and things that I find that move me. They put in the newsletter as well as my blog, which sort of is the evolution of my thinking. And I welcome readers and hearing from them, too. Catherine, this was absolutely fantastic. It was inspirational, powerful, motivational. Your blogs, your newsletters, your books, they're all must-read. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Looking forward to a wonderful 2022 ahead. Thank you very much for coming on the Shine On Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I, I had a, It was fun. I enjoyed it a lot.
Episode 28 in the books. What an absolutely phenomenal show to end the year. Producer Dave, what an amazing show. What an amazing year. Thank you for absolutely everything. And thank you, Evan, for my opportunity to be a, a small part of this endeavor. Season one was a tour de force, but if you thought season one was great, you won't believe season two. That's a teaser for you, and I look forward to it, Evan. Great, Dave, and brilliant. Catherine Esty, she was terrific. What an absolutely amazing interview to end the year. Thank you to her, and thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and all major podcast platforms. The Shine On Podcast YouTube channel is coming in 2022, along with a lot more content and new Shine On Podcast segments. Check out the complete archive of podcast episodes from season one. Follow the podcast and follow me on social media for the latest content. Head over to shineondivorce.com. Send in your emails, your comments to Evan at shineondivorce.com. Happy holidays. Happy and healthy new year, everybody. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again in the new year. See you in 2022.